welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. You guys ready for this? I've been doing a little stretching. I ran a marathon last week. Thank you. I was seriously, I was, I was intending to bring my shoes that I ran. Hey, sorry, Betsy moved away back. Everybody, Betsy Deering, she's back from the south. There we go. Yep, moved to, moved to the south. Okay, so I was going to bring my shoes um, that I ran the marathon with and like hang them as, you know, like a trophy case. One and done is my philosophy with marathons, everybody. One and done. Uh, that was amazing. Um, BT dubs. World Vision, Team World Vision, um, raised over a half a million dollars for clean water um, projects in Africa around the world. So these are like all the Team World Vision runners that have, that have gathered in different states and whatnot. And Minnesota, in fact, was the highest um, like per person fundraising team of any Team World Vision team in the country. Yeah, yeah, how about that? Fantastic. Very cool. Very cool. So while the marathon was fun, uh, that's really why we were doing this, many of us. So um, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to uh, Deuteronomy 21. And uh, if you are new, we started a new series last week uh, called Lost in Translation. Many of you were here. Jenna, wow, bang up job uh, on a really, really uh, very thoughtful and Uh, I thought, theological as well as pastoral approach to a text that, um, for many of us, has been a a tough one to read through and understand. Um, So the idea in this series is essentially, um, we are, we're we're saying out loud that there are some passages in Scripture that uh, maybe are difficult, uh, maybe often misinterpreted, or at the very least, there are varied translations or interpretations of them. So we're picking out seven or eight of them between now and Advent, and we're going to be walking through them. My hope is that we grow in our capacity to read and understand the scriptures. We'll see. Um, The worst case scenario is that sometimes the Bible is a barrier to faith for some people. We come to this text and we read certain passages and they actually, it becomes a barrier for belief for some. At, at, at the very least, uh, sometimes causes confusion and questions or doubt and, and can be unsettling. And so for many, there's this sense of inconsistency between uh, what, we, what we know and, and is revealed in Jesus and then what we read in the text of Scripture, often in the Old Testament. Sometimes God is portrayed as angry and sort of vitriolic and retributive. And uh, is that really what God is like? Well, some people say yes. I would argue no. Um, but this today, um, I, I, I knew that a whole bunch of people were going to be gone on the retreat, and I thought, you know, I, I don't want um, to let off the gas at all. So this morning, I wanted to tackle, a, I think, a, a, an alarming passage uh, at times. And this is the deep end of the pool, guys. I totally recognize this, um, that... Th- Looking at a text like this or texts like these, um, this is, so put on your thinking caps, I guess. This is an invitation to put on your thinking caps. And um, my hope is, I want to try at least uh, possibly to give back the Bible in some ways, to give back a scripture in a different way to some of us. I want to try to argue and present a way of looking at the text that is consistent, that allows us to see God and the whole of Scripture in a way that reflects the character that I believe God to have. 
where we don't have to check our brains and critical thinking skills at the door in order to have belief. I think you can have both. Uh, I really do. And so I, I hope that uh, we're able to do that this morning. So are you with me? Okay, a couple of you are. Great. The rest of you, uh, get your iPhones out and play Bejeweled for a while. <laughs> Deuteronomy 21, uh, stand if you can, and we will read starting in verse 10. says this in the Holy Scriptures. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and shave her head, trim her nails, or have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to be with her, or you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. The word of the Lord. <laughs> Pray with me. God, I ask that as we uh, are honest and are seekers uh, this morning of that which is true and that which uh, is really reflective of who you are, that you might be uh, gracious, that you might guide us. Um, Holy Spirit, I really pray that this morning that you would um, guide my words, uh, that what uh, what I say might be uh, congruent with who you are. Um, I pray that the things that are of you, God, would, would grow, that they would take root in our hearts, that they would challenge us in our lives. The things that are not, that they would just fall off the end of this platform and uh, never be heard again. Uh, so I guess, Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would, you would really speak, that you would be the loudest voice in the room, and that uh, ultimately, as your church gathers this morning, we would understand more and more and more about the beauty and the character and the love uh, that we believed you to be. Um, so we pray this in your name and in the strong name of Jesus, uh, by the power of your spirit and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. The word of the Lord. So, uh, this is, that, that, that was a passage from the Bible um, a little bit of background before we jump in. This is a passage from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy in, in Greek means the second law or this second law. And it's really like a second giving of the law of uh, Moses, the Levitical law, which we find in, in the book of Leviticus, primarily in Torah. And then really it's kind of uh, recapitulated in a number of ways, not in its entirety, but a lot of it is given again in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is the law, or the giving of, uh, so God sort of giving the law to the Israelites. So it's Yahweh giving guidelines to this group of people about what to do when they conquer a neighboring nation, uh, and in particular when there are spoils of war. Uh, more specifically in this passage, what to do with women and children, uh, of course, after they've killed all the men. So sum up the verse, you've got this. God says, essentially, when you go to the war and the Lord delivers these people into your hands, after you've killed all of the men who may be a threat to your survival, if you see a woman and find her pleasing and attractive, you may take her as your wife. But only after you bring her into your home, you let her shave her head, trim her nails, and change her clothes, because that's what every grieving woman would do, want to do. It's a joke. 
uh, let her mourn for a month and then take her to be your wife and do things that might come naturally with your wife. If she does not please you, you let her go. That's basically what's being said, right? Now, uh, here's what I want to do this morning. I want to try to offer some thoughts on this passage uh, about the Bible. And we have to, I think we have to start with the Bible and the nature of this book. So I want to start there and try to frame what we've read. And then I want to offer some thoughts about you and I. And then I want to try, at least attempt, to kind of turn on the lights um, and argue, I want to argue, that this passage is actually a testimony to the love of God for every human, and in specific, the dignity and honor of women. So, <laughs> are you ready? Here we go. Number one, what is the Bible? Uh, I remember as a kid um, going to youth group and going to conferences and things like this, and I, it, not a particular or specific moment, but just this overall sense of people who would stand up at these conferences or camps or whatever, and they'd say, like, this is the Bible. This is your guidebook. This answers all your questions that you might have about life, and all you need to do is follow its direction. Has anybody ever heard this before? I think that's a terrible idea. I think that is just really, really bad advice. Terrible advice. Um, I think this is something that is of great value and of great import. It is a divine word inspired, yes and yes and yes. But to say that this answers all the questions you have, and it's like our guidebook, sort of our, 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 our instruction manual, if you've ever heard that before. Gang, all you need to do is read for a little while before you see the holes in that theory, Okay. I don't think that's the question. I don't think that's the nature of this book. But then, what is the nature of this book? And I think if you read a passage like this one, you have to start there. So, what is this book? What do we know about this book? This is an all-play question. I don't do this every week, but sometimes. I'm curious, what do you know about the Bible, or what have you heard about the Bible? Like, the nature of this book. Just shout out the things that you know or have heard. The Bible is divinely inspired. What else? Many genres. Story of God's people. The Word of God. Yes. What else? Yeah. Revelation about Jesus. It's true. Yeah. Truth. Absolutely. Lots of different things have been said and can be said about the Bible. Um, I want to try to unpack this a little bit. So if you'll bear with me, a little bit of history. Um, have you ever heard the words infallibility or inerrant? Yeah, some of you have heard these before. So in the late 1970s, there was a document. It was called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, where it was stated that the Bible is without error or fault in its teaching, in all of its teaching. So this is inerrant, right? Infallible uh, is essentially what the Bible says regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is wholly useful and true. Okay, so one author says, the Bible is inerrant if and only if it makes no false or misleading statements on any topic. And the Bible is infallible if and only if it makes no false or misleading statements on any matter of faith or practice. Now, why should you care about this? In the 20th century, Christianity in particularly, stick with me here, this won't take long, I don't think, Christianity and specifically evangelicalism is influenced by and steeped in what many call modernism. And modernism is characterized by the Enlightenment, 
scientific and industrial revolution, among other things, but these are three major things that happen in this period of time. So Christianity becomes really influenced by these things. And as you can see with these two terms, infallible and inerrant, the Bible begin, or people begin to try to answer questions of science, math, and reason because these are sort of the currencies of the day. So the Bible then, which is the Word of God, becomes in this kind of context, it becomes this sort of inflexible, static, unchangeable, scientific text with hard edges and sort of definitive declarations. To challenge the Bible is to challenge God. If the Bible says it, I believe it, that's enough. Comes from this way of thinking. Now the problem that I would submit with this view of the Bible, while the Bible being true and accurate are important discussions, the problem is we freeze the text. And the text becomes the be-all, end-all, for-all, for-all times. Rather than what I want to argue that it is, which is a snapshot, a div- no less a divine word, but a snapshot on a continuum of human experience. If we believe the Bible to be a fixed point, once and for all, for all, on everything it discusses, then we have to take the Bible at face value. Because the Bible is essentially God's word. They're, they're, they're equal. They're on the same plane. And I submit to you that that is a very dangerous position and approach to Scripture. One which requires you then to hold some pretty interesting views, I would say harmful views, on women, children, marriage, slavery, etc., etc. What if the Bible is something else? What if it is not this text that is the be-all, end-all, for-all on all that it discusses. Rather, what if it is a point along a continuum of human experience and evolution, which isn't to say anything about how the world was created, but just that humans progress. What if it's a point along, it's both a divine word and a reflection of the context from which it was written. So, if you will please, uh, I just ran. I haven't done that in a while. I was, I was going to bring my shoes, and I forgot them this morning. And so I literally, I was like, 10 o'clock, I have time. I grab my keys, and I run out to the, my car. And across the parking lot, I was like, I'm running again. It's amazing. I'm not dead. What if the Bible is a, if this is human history, and this is the beginning of human experience, human consciousness, human uh, we show up, and this is present time, right? And friends, if you believe that, the, uh, that, that we got here as a result of a big bang and a, and a you know, energy that has evolved into what we are now, or you believe that, the, that God spoke and uh, the, the earth is 7,000 years old, it doesn't really matter, okay? This is just the beginning, and this is the present. What if the scriptures are a snapshot along a continuum of human experience and evolution, and progression, and it is both at once a divine-inspired word of God, a revelation of who and what God is, and a product from which and in which it was written from. Then we have some interesting things to talk about. If it's true that the Bible is a reflection in some ways of the culture from which it was written, 
then we should be asking, what kind of culture is this? And what is normative in that culture and context? How did these people see themselves and the world around them? How did they understand things to work? What's the dominant lens or narrative that these people would have lived by and understood? I think one of the ways that we could, we could articulate that, what's the dominant lens or narrative from this context and culture is one you could call tribal. So if our context and culture now is sort of global or nation state, like this is one of the ways that we understand the world, you could argue that the Bible was written in a context and time that was absolutely and utterly tribal. So then we start asking some questions about, well, what does that mean? What's normal in a tribal context and culture? Okay? A couple of things. One, the protection and preservation at all costs of the tribe was essentially to protect your own livelihood and your family. So you protected your tribe and your people at all costs because that meant you stayed alive. You would, uh, the marriage of your tribal identity and your spiritual identity. So to be from this tribe means to be that you worship this God. So then, if your neighboring tribe decides to wage war on you, it's essentially your God against their God, right? Think 1 Kings 18. You remember the story about Elijah and the prophets of who? Baal, right? That's a neighboring God. So you have Yahweh versus Baal, or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it. So you, you would marry, essentially, your tribal identity and your, and your spiritual identity. Um, you, would, you would have warring tribes for the purpose of securing land or water or uh, geographic or military advantage. Did we get those pictures in there, Mike? Yeah, okay. So here's, here's two examples of how this works out. The first one, this is a place called Tel Dan. Does anybody remember the, the city of Dan in the scriptures? It's in the, like the farthest north part of Israel. This is the largest karstic spring in all of the Middle East. All right? This is what it looks like at the beginning, and just downriver it looks like this. This becomes the Jordan River. It waters all of Israel and Palestine. This particular piece of land has been fought over again and again and again and again and again because if you control this land, you control everything south of it for about 250 miles. So tribes would war over this land because if you controlled it, you lived, <laughs> right? Go to the next one, if you would. Uh, I wish I had my laser pointer, but just to the, this is the Sea of Galilee on the left, and just to the right of that is what's called the Golan Heights. Just to the right of that is what is modern-day Syria. North is Lebanon, south is Israel. Everybody tracking? So the Golan Heights, right on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, is the highest point between Israel and Syria. If you know anything about military strategy, if you have an elevated position, you win, Right? So this section of land right here, the Golan Heights, has been fought over for generations and generations, for millennia. Because if you control this spot, you control, you, you have an advantage over your neighbors. So often in this kind of culture, there would be wars over these types of places. This is totally normal for a tribal culture. When you won a war, you would attribute the victory to your god, because your Identity as a tribe was equal to or married to your identity or the, the people or the God that you worshipped. These are all normal things. When you won a war, when you conquered a neighboring tribe, you would kill all of the men and possibly the boys. Why? 
so they couldn't, there was, they were a threat to you, right? If you killed the, the potential to procreate, then you've, killed all, you've eliminated the threat for people usurping your, your new authority or your position in the world. This is truly Game of Thrones, right? If you've seen the show. Why do I say all of this? When we read a passage like Deuteronomy chapter 21, and we don't have any of this in view, we are missing, we're missing absolutely critical information. And when we read a passage like Deuteronomy 21, and if in fact the Bible is written from this culture, then we should expect to hear this kind of language. It should come as no surprise to anybody that God instructs the Israelites who live in this world to live in a particular way. He's not going to tell them to park on one side of the street or to mail their uh, taxes to the IRS. Because that's not their world. So it shouldn't come as any kind of a shock when God says, when there are spoils of war, here's how you are to act. So the nature of the book in which we're reading, I think, becomes absolutely important to understanding what's being said and how it's being said. Now, what about you? What about me? I want to say a little bit about what's being said in the text, because that, I think, actually is the key, uh, which we'll save for the last. But what about you and I? I hope and pray that when you read a passage like this, you are mortified. You are appalled. You are disgusted and you hate the sound of it. I hope that you think it sounds patriarchal and barbaric and archaic. I hope that you do. Because in 2015, it is. It's absolutely all of those things. One author says it this way. If you didn't find these shocking and awful and confusing, something is wrong with you. And people who read these stories and say, well, that's just how God is, have a very warped and dangerous view of God. Humanity has moved. We have progressed. We have evolved in some ways, shapes, and forms. Which, again, is is, is to say nothing about apes and monkeys. It's to say something about the fact that humanity has the capacity to move and progress and be awakened to new ways of being. We know better than to treat another human being this way. We no longer think that women are property good for nothing more than pleasure and procreation. Hang on, some of you are like, yes, there are outliers, right? The majority of humanity, I would argue, knows that women are not, that we don't think that that's the only purpose for women. We don't think that blacks are inferior because of the color of their skin. We've moved along this continuum, and that is a good thing. Now again, guys, I recognize that if we didn't say that there are still places in the world where these things happen, we'd be kidding ourselves. But your response to a passage like that, if it is like, oh man, I want to say yes. I want to affirm that. Even though you're saying, oh to the word of God, to the Bible. I think that's a good thing. It proves that humanity is being pulled towards something more. It proves that we have the capacity for growth and awakening and enlightenment. Now, some would say that that capacity is inherently in us, and if we just muster that up enough, we're going to be good to go. Others would say that, actually, we need a little help in that. 
I'm not arguing for this. I'm arguing for this. Either way, we are not static, you and I, the human race. We're, hopefully, we are moving and learning and progressing. Now, in some ways, we've just become more sophisticated with our violence, so it looks a little less barbaric and archaic. But I think that there are actually ways in which we've moved, we've progressed, we have We know that slavery is a bad idea, that the subjugation of women is a terrible, that the exploitation of children is not good. We have the capacity for change. We can move towards a more abundant life and a more full life, and I would argue that someone has blazed that trail and invited us to follow and offered a spirit to go with us on that journey. This is the Christian message. Now, Let me see if I can turn on the lights on this passage. Can this passage reflect the beauty of God's heart? Is it possible that what we've just read in Deuteronomy 21 is actually a click forward, not a move backwards? Even though this passage at face value may appear gross or appalling, and maybe it's a snapshot along a continuum... Is it possible that there are revolutionary and brand new ideas in this text? Two of them I would offer as we close. I think there are more, but for the sake of time. One. One tribe to bless them all. Thank you, Tolkien. One tribe to bless all of the other tribes. Israel. The people of God, the original plan in in the Old Testament scriptures of God to essentially put things back together is one tribe to bless all of the other tribes. Think about Israel. In a time when the preservation of your tribe meant the preservation of your family and your own life, in a time when it was totally normal to make alliances with neighboring tribes to ensure your safety and position in the world, in a time when the killing of all of the men of a conquered tribe in order to wipe out threats and take the women and children as slaves and concubines, at a time when all of this was completely and utterly normal, imagine a group of people whose sole purpose in the world was to be a blessing to everybody else whose sole purpose was to bring all of the tribes together as one humanity, whose outlook on life was not tribal-centric, but actually human-centric, whose very laws instructed them to leave a corner of their field unharvested for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, whose way of being in the world included grace and forgiveness and setting of people free, a tribe whose 613 laws was a brand new idea in human history. This book becomes then the evidence for a God who enters into our story and invites us forward to more and more and more life-giving activity and ways of being in the world. That's a brand new idea. One tribe to bless all the other tribes. One group of people to model what it looks like to be human in the world. To make one large human family. Instead of one that's broken up by factions and divisions and race and any, other, any number of other ways. That's, that's revolutionary. 
And then specifically in our passage that we read this morning, what if this tribe, while you live in the world that you live in and may participate in the way in which things are to a degree, wars and responding to threats, women are to be treated with honor and dignity. So when all of the men whose provision was needed by the women are gone, don't leave them out in the cold. Don't abandon them. In fact, take them in all the way into your family and give them a chance and do it in an honorable way. Let them mourn the loss of their husbands and their fathers. Let them change their garments from being the garments of conquered slaves to those of mourning wives and mothers and daughters. Give them the time that they need and that maybe their culture requires and then marry them. Take them all the way into your family so that if they want a place, they have one. And if they don't, let them go. If they've made friends with other neighboring tribes, let them go. Because you have taken something from them and caused them great grief. I know it's hard for us to imagine that that's what Deuteronomy 21 says, but I want to offer the possibility that we're getting closer. This was a radical and revolutionary idea when this text was written. That you would honor a woman in such a way that she was no longer seen as property and good, and, and, and good for whatever you wanted until you didn't want it anymore but rather you treated her like a person, like a human being, and you allowed her to grieve what you've taken. I would argue that this is not a picture of a tyrannical and brutal and retributive God who is bloodthirsty, but rather a God who sees something that is not right and invites those who are participating in it to move forward and closer to and more towards that which is life-giving, not away from it. It's not all the way there, right? It was written thousands of years ago. And yet, if we see it in its context, it is a bombshell towards life, towards equality, towards shalom, not away from it. And so I guess I'll just stop for this morning and maybe ask a couple of questions. Many of us, well, we come from lots of different places. And we have experienced this book in lots of different ways. And maybe for some of you, you don't even need to hear anything that I'm saying today. You and Jesus, you're fine. You and the Bible, you're cool. But if I know any of you, I think I know that some of you, and maybe even me, have really struggled with some of the things that this book says. And yet I'm so compelled by this person of Jesus that I can't, I can't let go. And I wonder if this isn't one person's offering of a way to say, you don't have to check your brain at the door in order to say, I trust this Jesus and I follow this way of being human in the world. And I believe that this book offers and, and paints a picture 
of the heart of God, which is moving us more and more and more towards Jesus, not further and further away from it. And so if you have ever been or felt that this book didn't do that, then can I just offer maybe an apology? Maybe a spirit of repentance? Maybe a, I'm really, really sad that that's been the experience for people sometimes. And it breaks my heart because I think, and I'm convinced, gang, this is, like, I'm hanging my, my, my hat on this one, right? Like, my life. The work of my life is based on whether or not this is true or not. So I feel like I have some credibility to say it. And I hope and pray that as we wrestle with, gang, the the name Israel in Hebrew means he who wrestles with God and people and is not overcome. The very name of God's people in the text is a group of people who wrestle. That's okay. It's actually encouraged. So I'm wondering this morning, can you trust that God? Can you trust this God? What if God is actually more beautiful than you've ever imagined? What if God is more gracious, more loving, more merciful, more forgiving, more welcoming, more hospitable than you've ever even imagined? Can you trust that God with your life? And that's the invitation. And I guess I would leave you with that to think and consider. Um, I'm going to offer a word of prayer, a time of silence, and then we will close singing at least one song together, I think maybe two. And you're invited to participate to the degree that you can and want to. If you want to just listen and hear, if you want to sing it out, Either way. But I want to invite you to a time of silence to consider. So, if you would, God, as we uh, gather this morning, as we uh, together wrestle with this text, we do so uh, not with hubris, not with arrogance but with honesty. God, with humble hearts and with a desire to know who you are. God, with a desire to really see you for who you are. And I pray that as we take just a few moments of silence that you might lead us. In your scripture, it says that your spirit is the spirit of truth. So God, we fear We have no fear in trusting ourselves to that. That you might lead us to truth. That you might show us who you are. Reveal to us. Open our eyes. God, and if there's a a way in which we have seen you that is less than true, would you show us and invite us to that which is more true. More who you are. Would you give us the courage to take whatever step it is that you're inviting us to take this morning. And maybe it's from a hundred miles away, but just one step closer. 
Would you give us the courage to do that? Would you surprise us and be even more beautiful than we imagine that you are? Friends, I want to invite you to stand. And uh, as we close, I'll just maybe leave with this thought, or I'd leave you with this thought. Uh, I'm one guy trying to figure this out. Uh, I'm not the ultimate authority, but I'm trying to offer something that I believe is compelling and true and beautiful. But you don't have to agree with me. And if you don't, that's fine. Uh, Hopefully you're in a group and a part of this community and there's a setting where you can wrestle with that and talk about it. That's totally fine. If you want to take me out for coffee or buy me a beer, you're paying, but I'll be there. Uh, um, And I'd love to to, 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 to actually dialogue and converse more if uh, that's in your heart. So receive this benediction, this blessing today. May you come to see that God is more beautiful than you imagined. May you know and experience the God of the scriptures who is filled with compassion and love for all that God has made good. And may you move closer and closer, one step closer to this God and to all that is in God's heart for you and for our world. And may you be filled with grace and peace. Amen? Amen. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.